1: look for the age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kinway, Hefe, Zuman, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Allende Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our two newest Commodores. That's Commodore's Mossman and Nopales. <laughs> hello welcome to the pirate history podcast my name is matt thank you for listening the word renaissance means literally rebirth the harlem renaissance in the u.s for example was a time when black artists were rediscovering their distinctly african-american voices the renaissance the european renaissance was a time in which europe flowered in art and architecture and literature Europe was able to do this because they were rediscovering the fruits of imperial conquest and money, rediscovering it from the time of Rome. In France and Spain and England, the Renaissance occurred at different times, but it was always seen as a return to the grandeur and the education and the enlightenment of ancient Rome. That's the rebirth to which the name refers, the rebirth of Rome. Nowhere in Europe was that sentiment felt as strongly as it was where the Renaissance was born, in various principalities and dukedoms, in republics and independent fiefdoms, all of which made up Italy. They were Rome, they were the ancestors of Rome at least, and their art and sculpture and even their buildings whispered of Rome's glorious past. When Julia Gonzaga missed being swept away in the dark of night and ravaged by Moorish invaders, the Italian poets, eager to relive some of that grandeur, devoured her story. In part, that's because it was an easy story to tell. The lady Julia escaped unharmed. It had a happy ending, at least for the storytellers. Imagine the tale told in the form of a bad harlequin romance novel. Imagine, a young girl, only fourteen, married off to some stuffy nobleman more than twice her age, and then three years of quiet, boring, properly pious Catholic life, and then her husband dies and leaves her a widow. And then, cannon fire, a horde of lusty, dusky, young, bearded rogues arrive at her front door, Their commander, with piercing blue eyes and fiery red hair, effortlessly throws her over his shoulder to carry her away to distant and exotic shores. In that story, a girl could fall in love. Her reluctance could be overcome and her passion could fill her. Of course, by the 1530s, the real Barbarossa was not that young. He was growing quite stout and his fiery red hair had quite a bit of gray in it. And he was closer to thrice her age than twice her age, significantly older than her husband had been. And this lusty, dusky pirate, well, he was violent. He was a man bent on murder and enslavement. There was no romance to be found. Even if Julia Gonzaga had been one for romantic flights of fancy, and by all accounts she wasn't, but even if she was, she would have known that Barbarossa was not the man of her dreams and would have run away. But imagine that you are another young noblewoman or even a middle-class merchant's daughter somewhere in Italy. All around you, the Renaissance is blooming in art and poetry, and yet you're still forced to marry. At best, that was likely a stuffy, boring life of a housewife for someone who should be experiencing everything that life has to offer, Right next door to your home, Rome was being reborn, and yet you would have to spend time praying and keeping house and bearing your husband's children. But then what if that poem came across your lap? Wouldn't you fantasize about being whisked away by a handsome young pirate? Wouldn't you imagine a new life on those foreign shores? The shockingly revealing garments, the luxurious palatial life in an ancient Mediterranean castle, the exotic and erotic lifestyle of an Arabian princess. Of course, that's not anything like what their lives would actually have been, but it was a story that captured the imagination, and the Barbary coast still held some of that allure that Carthage had held in the mind of the Romans— sensual and feminine and opulent, silks and dates and fine wines. In a way, in the minds of the Italians at least, Carthage was reborn alongside the rebirth of Rome. Of course, if Carthage was reborn, we have to consider the words of an actual Roman, Cato the Elder, "Carthago de Linda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. And if the new Roman Emperor had anything to say about it, it would be. This is Episode 79, A Circus of Murder and Looting. Last time, the two most prominent naval commanders in the Mediterranean were busy capturing and recapturing cities and fortresses and islands all around the Mediterranean. While Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent was in Austria on a diplomatic mission, the imperial admiral Andrea Doria captured a number of Greek Ottoman cities most notably Coroni and Patras. While Suleiman and his heir Barbarossa had an embassy in France they recaptured both of those cities Coroni and Patras. Doria actually defeated the original fleet sent by Sultan Suleiman to take Coroni back but Barbarossa strengthened the forces there and took the city. It helped that Andrea Doria was already off to the African coast to cause mischief there. And it went like that for some time. The two fronts were Greece and the Maghreb, and one or the other was always left vulnerable. There may have been some conflict between Suleiman and Barbarossa here. Barbarossa was named the Pasha of Algiers, the Sultan of the Maghreb, but whenever Doria captured some land in Greece, Suleiman would order Barbarossa to leave his shores in the Maghreb, undefended, and retake those Greek islands. It was a fruitless series of campaigns. Barbarossa would retake those islands in Greece. Doria would attack the Maghreb. Barbarossa would rush over to defend them, and then Doria would attack somewhere else. Except for the tremendous amount of plunder and slaves that Barbarossa was bringing back, which was significant, he wasn't really gaining anything, at least not politically. And I should clarify here, Barbarossa was ordering these things done, but usually he stayed behind in some island fortress. I mean, he would travel to Greece or the Maghreb, but he wouldn't be on the ships commanding them on the ground. That job was left to his top captain, a man who held the position formerly held by Barbarossa, Sinan Rais. If we were to try and compare characters on either side of this conflict, the two emperors, Charles and Suleiman, would obviously be at the top. Directly below them would be Hayreddin Barbarossa and Andrea Doria. They were their top admirals. Sinan Rais sat below Barbarossa, alongside the two other of Barbarossa's top lieutenants, who we have yet to introduce. But on the other side of the aisle, we have characters that might be analogous as well. I'm going to introduce one of those later as well, but then we have the nephews of Andrea Doria, Filippino Doria, and Giovanni Andrea Doria. So there are sultans, emperors, and then admirals, and then their sub-commanders, who all kind of fall in the same basket. Now, all of these sub-commanders were younger. Sinan Rais was probably in his 20s still, and the other men not much older. And Barbarossa and Andrea Doria were growing older by this point. So, Filipino Doria was usually the arbiter of his uncle's will, in much the same way that Sinan Rais did whatever Hered and Barbarossa wanted him to do. All of that is not to say that Barbarossa and Doria were... Toothless, and not to say that they didn't clash from time to time. After Doria captured Algiers, Barbarossa retreated to Gigel to regroup and get his forces in order. Now this was a retreat, but not a defeat. See, Doria had his whole armada, 40 galleys strong with a contingent of galleons for a backbone. It would have been suicidal for Barbarossa to engage him there. That was the sort of bravery that killed Oruj Barbarossa. Instead, he took what of his fleet was left at Algiers to Gigel, and there he gathered all his forces to him. He called on the privateers in jerba he called on the privateers everywhere in the Mediterranean, and they came in to join him in Gigel. When Andrea Doria came to oust him from Gigel, thinking it would be another easy fight, He found himself severely outmatched and had to retreat back to Algiers. And then Barbarossa chased him back to Algiers and forced Doria and all the imperial forces to retreat. But that, right at that moment of victory, is when Barbarossa was called to Istanbul by the sultan on that errand to recapture those Greek islands. He had the opportunity to reclaim land in Africa, but instead he had to worry about a bunch of minor towns in rural Greece that Suleiman wanted for trade. But he left Algiers in more than capable hands. This is one of those under-lieutenants I mentioned, a man named Dragut. He was called, later on in his life, the Drawn Sword of Islam, and he earned that name fighting alongside Barbarossa. He was a corsair under Rouge and then Hizir Barbarossa for many years. He was sort of a land-based twin of Sinan Rais. Now, he was a commander at sea and skilled at it, but his skills, well, he really seemed to excel at leading men and administration. While Sinan inherited the privateers from Barbarossa, Dragut inherited the lordship over Jerba and Tripoli and eventually Algiers. Now, Barbarossa was still his bailer bey his overlord, but Dragut was singularly skilled in tactics. And many would consider that team under Barbarossa, seen on Rais and Dragut, to be the two towers that propped up Barbarossa's rule. Now, a third player would be introduced later on who might even surpass those two, but he's yet to join the story. Now that summons sent him on a months-long voyage from Algiers to Gigel to Istanbul to Greece, where he captured those Greek cities, finally to the Ionian and Adriatic seas. I really wish that there had been a William Dampier or a Bartholomew Sharp on board this voyage, writing everything down. Then we would have a first-hand account of what I assume was a thrilling, death-defying voyage of terror along the coasts of Naples and Venice. Had I access to a source like that, I could spend as much time on this voyage of Barbarossa and Sinan Rais and Dragut there in the Ionian and Adriatic Seas as I did talking about the pirates in the Pacific recently. They were there for many, many weeks and they attacked many, many cities. And there are some details every time, but nothing that creates a compelling story. But imagine them hiding out in the islands of what would be modern-day Croatia and striking at unsuspecting settlements and ships all the length of the eastern coast of Italy. And then, if Heredin Barbarossa had in fact been sent on an errand to capture Julia Gonzaga, he attempted to do just that. But he failed in that mission, and it was apparently the last of his appointed tasks on this voyage. Finally, he was able to return to the Maghreb and reclaim his country from the grip of Andrea Doria and his overlord, Charles V. Now, this might have been the plan all along. When Barbarossa was recalled to Istanbul after the attack on Algiers, the sultan also recalled Kurtuglu from his base on Rhodes. Now, this might have been the first time that they had seen one another in some years. And it was also around this time that Kurtuglu's first son was born. Kurtuglu named his son Kurtuglu Hizir Muslehidin in honor of his old friend, Hizir Barbarossa. And that young man was going to be among the first of the next generation of Ottoman commanders that would harry the Spanish and Portuguese and Mughal shipping from the Mediterranean all the way to the Indian Ocean. But Kertuglu was summoned specifically for his expertise in fleet building. He had overseen the construction of the Red Sea fleet, and now the Sultan had a new job for him. Well, technically, Barbarossa, the Grand Admiral of the Ottoman fleet, his boss, had a job for him. Kurtuglu was to build a new and deadly Ottoman Mediterranean fleet, intended to smash Andrea Doria and Charles V and the navies of all of Europe if need be. And while Barbarossa was on that weeks-and-weeks-long voyage of thrilling, dashing heroics, capturing cities and terrorizing noble ladies, Kurtuglu was building a fleet, and it was ready, finally, in early 1534. Barbarossa met with that fleet and then was spotted off Panza, Sicily, and off Sardinia, but he didn't attack anywhere until he arrived outside the city of Tunis with 80 galleys on 16 March 1534. He captured Tunis in a single day. The leader of the city, the Hafsid Sultan, Muli Hassan, was an ally of Charles V and an enemy of the Ottoman Empire. He fled the city when Barbarossa attacked. He fled to Morocco and then on to Spain to beg King Charles for help. Now, last time I may have told you that Malta was off the coast of Spain, those of you with a significantly better grasp of geography than I have will note that that is not true. Malta, the home of the Knights of Malta, the Knights Hospitalier, is off the coast of Sicily, just south of mainland Italy, and that's why Barbarossa took that fabulous new navy that Kurtuglou had built and recaptured Tunis. He could use that city as a base from which to mount offenses against the Knights of Malta. That was the most effective port of call. But while he was preparing for that offensive against the Knights of Malta, Barbarossa received a message, a surprising message. It was from Charles, of the houses Habsburg and Burgundy, King of the Romans, King of Italy, King of Spain, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Burgundy, Lord of the Netherlands, Grand High Inquisitor, Holy Roman Emperor, son of Philip, King of Castile, grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs, and grandson of Maximilian I, Holy Roman Emperor, and rightful heir to the imperial throne." In his official communiques, Charles could spit out a list of titles and accomplishments at least as long as Suleiman the Magnificent. I don't envy the messenger that was sent to recite that list to Barbarossa. That messenger brought word from Charles V. Charles said that he would pull back all of his forces from Algeria, from Tunis, from Zizil, from Jerba, and even from Malta. He would recall Andrea Doria and even pay money to Barbarossa in reparations for all of the damage done. He would allow Barbarossa lordship over the entirety of the Maghreb. He would even then send him a fleet of brand new Spanish galleons to defend it, complete with not only sails and hulls, but the best Dutch guns available in the world. All Barbarossa had to do to get all of that was renounce his allegiance to Suleiman the Magnificent and swear allegiance to Charles. And it was actually a pretty sweet deal Charles was making. Now, Charles may have been a Catholic and the Grand High Inquisitor, but he was a practical ruler. He was willing to allow complete religious freedom everywhere in the Maghreb, Jews, Muslims, Coptic Christians, Zoroastrians, Catholics, whatever their religion might be, they would all live in equality and peace, as long as that's what Barbarossa wanted. Maybe, if Barbarossa was willing, they could take a few of these Protestants off of our hands while they're at it. He also told Barbarossa that he would not tax this new Maghreb kingdom. What he was going to do was make Barbarossa a viceroy. Essentially, what he was offering him was the throne of that dethroned half-Sid sultan and the alliance of Spain and all of the thrones that he already held. He would be virtually independent, except in one matter, when he was called upon in military matters. And that means that he would have to turn his sword on the Ottoman Empire. Now, this was a serious offer. Basically, Charles was offering to make him the second most powerful person in the Holy Roman Empire, next to him. Barbarossa would be a king with more lands and more people under him than, well, even than Charles' brother, Ferdinand. He would have the support of Spain and Italy and Sicily and the Knights of Malta. Together, they could fight Suleiman. Put him back in his place, as it were. If there was tension between Barbarossa and Suleiman, and many think that there was, Barbarossa may actually have considered this. It was a sweet deal. I wonder how much trouble he had making up his mind. And there was even a certain racial component in the message here. Hazir Barbarossa was ethnically Armenian and Greek. He was... In the eyes of Charles, European, he was white. Wouldn't he rather fight on the side of other white Europeans than all of those Africans and Arabs and Jews? But here's the problem. Barbarossa knew many of those Africans and Arabs and Jews and Turks, and he called them friends. He trusted them with his life. More to the point, he was a potter's son. He wasn't some great man with a famous name. He was a nobody. He was raised up by Suleyman, the lawgiver, to be the second most powerful man in the Ottoman Empire. He had earned everything that he had because of one man. Why would he betray that man? With all of that on the table, all of those frankly generous offers, one might expect Barbarossa to send that messenger back to Charles with Strong words. But there was one other thing here. in Barbarossa means Hizir ad-Din Barbarossa. He was, quote, the greatest of the religion, named by the sultan himself, and the sultan who named him was the heir of the prophet of Allah. Barbarossa was fiercely Muslim. No small number of historians have called his exploits a jihad at sea, a, a holy war. Now, you can ask a man to betray his king and country, but it's foolish to ask a man to betray God.
0: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? which turned out to be a good thing. Secret communiques later revealed that that messenger had orders to assassinate Barbarossa if he should say no. But Charles instead received the head of the ambassador. Philip Gosse writes in The History of Piracy, quote, This was not to be endured. Charles V promptly assembled a huge fleet numbering more than six hundred vessels at Barcelona under the command of Andrea Doria, greatest of all Spanish admirals, though by birth a Genoese. In May 1535, the fleet departed for Tunis." And he goes on to give us a breakdown of the forces that were assembled. There were Germans and Italians and Spaniards, as well as a contingent of the Knights of Malta, That included men of almost every nation of Europe, including England and the Netherlands. But there were no Frenchmen. Charles asked King Francis I for aid, but it was here that he learned of that Franco-Ottoman alliance. The forces of Charles V and Andrea Doria arrived in the waters outside Tunis on 1 June 1535. Not to drive home the ancient Rome comparison too strongly here... But if you want to picture this battle, picture Ben-Hur, the 1959 Charlton Heston classic film, Ben-Hur. Now, I'm not much of a fan of Charlton Heston, but I am a fan of those huge epic 60s movies, and Ben-Hur is one of the best. There is a scene in which the once wealthy Judean Roman citizen, Judah Ben-Hur, is serving as a galley slave in the Roman navy, In that scene, Ben-Hur's galley is preparing for battle with the Macedonians, as it happens, and the commander orders the galley slaves pushed to the limit. There is a man keeping time at the head of the row of galley slaves, a drummer who drums and drums and drums and drums, and drums, and the men have to keep time with his drumming, and he drums faster, and faster, and faster, and faster, and the men begin to weary. Some of them are falling over from exhaustion. I mean, it's a spectacular scene. Go find it and watch it. But what Charlton Heston experienced on that Hollywood set shows us something not terribly unlike what the men on board the Catholic galleys experienced here and to be fair, the galley slaves on board the Ottoman ships would have experienced the same. But on these Catholic galleys there was a rumor, a debatable historical tidbit, but some have said that these galleys were rowed exclusively by imprisoned Protestants. That suggests that Ferdinand and Charles V emptied the German dungeons all across Germany and the Netherlands and Austria for every Protestant that had been arrested for illicit pamphlet hearing or sedition or sometimes open rebellion. They hauled them out of jail and chained them in the bowels of their imperial galleys, and then you can imagine them. Charlton Heston would be a good example, playing a Protestant minister, forced to row for Catholic Europe faster and faster and faster, And that's precisely what the oarsmen, these Protestant slaves, or not, experienced on board the Portuguese galleon Botafogo. Botafogo was the first ship in the fleet to make enemy contact. Now, she was a tall ship, rigged with sails, but galleons in 1535 still usually had oars to give them that last burst of speed, and that's exactly what Botafogo needed she was armed with a bowspur, a ram, and she was aimed directly at the chained and guarded harbor mouth at the fort of La Golette. The galley slaves rowed faster and faster and faster at a fever pitch, some of them almost certainly falling over from exhaustion when the Botafogo burst through the chains and the galleos blockading the harbor, and then the guns of the Botafogo, the boat of fire, erupted. Philip Ghost continues, "...after a short, intensive bombardment, a breach was made in the walls of the Goleta, the fortress guarding the harbor to the entrance of Tunis, and the Chevalier led the Knights of St. John through the breach and planted the banner of the order within the fortress." La Goleta was one of those Spanish pignons built upon the ruins of an ancient Berber fortress. When this attack came, the fortress was commanded by Sinan Rais, He was there because, in theory, from the walls of the fortress, he could see the naval battle below with a bird's eye. He would, if things had worked out this way, use flags to give orders to his ships in the harbor. However, there was the little, almost insignificant problem of the absolutely overwhelming number of enemy ships. The figure of 600 ships that Ghost gives us is almost certainly inflated, but the Holy Roman Emperor was there. Now, he was away landing the troops on land, but when the emperor himself was in attendance, he didn't mess around. Remember that time that he brought 20,000 troops to crush the army of Eruj Barbarossa? Well, this was another one of those. He came here to crush the corsairs. And Sinan Rais realized that a battle at sea was pointless. He was watching from above when those Spanish and Genoese galleys scattered his privateer navy and sent them running. Instead of giving naval commands and a great contest on the sea, he was forced to order troops into defensive positions in what was absolutely going to be a losing battle. Meanwhile, away from La Goleta in Tunis proper, Barbarossa was marshalling his army. Now that was the main force of the army, but even that wasn't going to be enough to hold against the might of Spain. When he saw the Spanish fleet, Barbarossa immediately sent out orders and organized a defensible retreat. I wonder if, in this moment, he regretted beheading that messenger. Once again, Philip goes, quote, After fierce hand-to-hand fighting, during which Sinan the Jew led three desperate counter-attacks, the Moors were at last driven out. Barbarossa placed himself at the head of an army of 10,000, and advanced on to meet the Christian army in its march on the city. But his troops broke and ran, and Ed Eddin, with his two great generals, Sinan and Drubdevil, fled to Bona, where the corsair commander had, with his usual foresight, stationed his fleet. End quote. I believe that Drubdevil is a... European name for Dragut, the governor of Zerba, who was there as well, Sinan's counterpart. And there aren't many sources that mention Barbarossa assembling his forces and marching in to intercept the army of Charles V. I've only seen that mentioned in three places, J. Morgan's 1727 book, Philip Gose's 1932 work, and the imperial state propaganda that was Almost a primary source, so take all of that with a grain of salt. This battle for Tunis took place on three fronts. One could describe them as three different battles fought by the army, the navy, and the marines. The first battle was fought between the navies. When Botafogo smashed through the barricade into La Goleta, a naval battle between the imperial navy and the Barbary corsairs took place, but it wasn't much of a battle. It was the entire Mediterranean might of Charles V versus Barbarossa's Tunisian fleet. It was a rout. Maybe two hours of Spanish and Genoese ships bombarding the Moorish Galliots. And the pirates ran. But then the second battle took place between what we might call the marines. Now, I'm talking about marines in the old sense of the word. Today, we tend to think about marines fighting in the desert of all places, but traditionally they were naval infantry. Even up until the 20th century, they were known for storming the beaches. And in this case, I'm talking about the Knights of Malta. They were the first soldiers to take their ships and make contact with the corsairs defending the fortress of La Goleta. Now, this right here is almost a bit of pirate-on-pirate pirate action. Now, the Knights of Malta were a holy order, they were far from pirates, but maybe not that far. Think about it, if you're a young man, a young knight in England, and you're serving the local duke or earl, and maybe you even have a decent estate, maybe you've got your eye on a potential wife, and the only combat you see in that life is at the jousts, Why would you drop all that to sail into the middle of the Mediterranean and join up with an order that would actually see truly dangerous combat? Well, there is the impetuous nature of many young soldiers looking for a fight. But imagine that, for example, you killed a man back in England. Not a murder, necessarily, perhaps self-defense, but the community might frown on that. Or say that you slept with a woman only to find out later that she has a famous father or maybe a husband. That might be a good moment for you to decide to go and join up with the Knights of Malta. They weren't a haven for criminals and the like, but they weren't entirely unlike the Night's Watch in Game of Thrones. Beyond that, they operated from their island fortresses largely as privateers, and they specialized in storming beaches and naval sieges. So, yeah... They're a holy order fighting the good fight, but kind of, sort of similar to pirates, if you look at it, kind of squinty. And the men that were standing guard on La Goleta were Sinan Rais's men. They weren't Ottoman janissaries or Berber conscripts, they were corsairs. They were, in a way, the Muslim equivalent of the Knights of Rhodes. So, maybe more of a privateer-on-privateer fight, but the fighting would have been largely the same. And that fighting, at La Goleta, between the two ranks of privateers, was where the battle for Tunis was decided. That's where men fought blade to blade and died on their enemy's sword. The third battle, the largest front between armies, never really coalesced. That was supposed to be the grand clash between Charles V and Hayreddin and Barbarossa, the fight in which the Emperor crushed the Corsair. And had that fight been fought, that's what would have happened. So Barbarossa turned around, took his army, and left. See, he wasn't a brave commander, he was a smart commander. He fought and spent lives when he could win, and occasionally he would gamble, but he didn't throw away lives for the sake of honor, and the primary sources seem to agree with that. And it depends on who you're reading here. The Europeans will paint Barbarossa as a coward who ran from every honest fight, and the Ottomans will paint Barbarossa as an intelligent commander who managed to keep his men alive to fight another day. And I suppose we'll see how that all turns out. But there are primary sources that agree with Gose's next passage. He writes, quote, In the meantime, thousands of Christian slaves broke out of the citadel and joined their rescuers in sacking and plundering the city. For three days the emperor gave the town over to a carnival of murder and looting, until, finally, the Christian soldiers and the Christian slaves turned on one another and fought over the spoils. Even the Catholic chroniclers speak with shame of the affair, for the victims were not pirates in any sense, but the innocent inhabitants of Tunis who, a year before, had been the Friends of Spain. End quote. Do you remember last time when I mentioned the racial and religious element in all of this, how the soldiers on both sides would more easily see people of different faith and skin color as less than human? Well, that happened here. They found over 30,000 bodies in Tunis. It was so bad that Charles V was forced to leave the city, his new conquest for an outpost well outside of her walls. It was the smell. And it's unlikely that Charles V actually allowed his soldiers to perform that carnival, It wasn't a smart move for a king to allow their soldiers to rape and pillage a city that they intended to occupy in that fashion. Now, typically, when you ask your soldiers to put their lives on the line, you tend to look the other way while they're securing the city. You don't ask too many questions. I mean, that's part of the benefits package. But you don't let your soldiers literally massacre tens of thousands of civilians that had formerly been loyal to you. I mean... Well, Tunis was Charles' city now. Why would he allow his soldiers to kill his citizens? I mean, if they happen across a fisherman's wife or a bag of silver, that's one thing. But mass murder on this scale? It looks to me like three things happened to create this massacre. First, there were the aforementioned racial and religious divisions. There were Jews and Muslims here, and they were of a generally brownish color, so... The moral compass, felt by many of the soldiers, may have been lacking. And then second, you've got those slaves that escaped. They had a huge hand in the atrocity that took place here, but think about it. They were galley slaves and prostitutes, and not the cool kind of prostitutes that run their own house and live in relative luxury. We're talking about sex slaves. Now, the escaped slaves were certainly on the lookout for some revenge, I imagine the men that beat the galley slaves and the women met unhappy ends at the hands of their former victims. But imagine seeing this from the point of view of the soldiers, the Catholic soldiers in Tunis. You see thousands of malnourished galley slaves with whip marks all over their bodies and hordes of women forced into prostitution freed from their chains. Wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you want to take that anger out on somebody? Think about the soldiers in World War II that liberated the concentration camps. Don't you think they wanted to go kill some Germans? And look, I love blaming kings and despots for all of the evil they did. And King Charles was certainly guilty for plenty of atrocities in his time. But here, in Tunis, I think it was a very human reaction, a desire for revenge that led to the death of 30,000 more or less innocent civilians. Philip Ghost tells us that after three days, King Charles finally turned his soldiers away from the looting and the murder, but it appears more to me that after three days, Charles finally got the looters and murderers under control with his soldiers, with occasional violence, or at least the threat of it. But there is a nice little bow with which to wrap this story up. We began today talking about the rebirth of Rome, the Renaissance. It was an idea at the time. People understood that they were living through a neoclassical movement. Everyone from the regular people through the artists and artisans all the way up to the rulers. Charles V, after the battle at Tunis, sailed for Italy. He made a procession through the countryside to the great city of Rome itself. And there, on 5 April 1535, Rome saw something that it had not seen in 1,000 years. The emperor of Rome, Charles V, with all of his assembled armies, and his captured enemy combatants, and all of the riches he could pull from Tunis, marched down the Via Triumphalis from the Colosseum, through the Arch of Constantine, to the Palatine Hill. It was an ancient Roman road with a long and distinguished past. All along the march, Charles waved at the assembled masses and attempted to look imperious. Those assembled masses cheered and threw rose petals, and trumpets blared for the first imperial Roman triumph since 455. Charles stood atop the world, and his nemesis, Barbarossa, Well, next time we're going to look at what Barbarossa did to earn his honor back. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, either by leaving us a donation at the website or becoming a patron on Patreon, or everybody who has given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, or share the show to your friends. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, come on, it's time to do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's b-r-i-l-l-i-g.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.